So this might be a talk that's just for those who are sitting here present today. I'm not sure we're going to post this openly. Or maybe our, maybe we will. Um, it's going to be a pretty unpopular talk. I can, I can say that. Uh, so we'll just see where it, where it goes. I was talking to one of my Dhammacharya students over the retreat, and um, she was trying to uh, uh, referee a a dispute, like two different ways that people were looking at something. But uh, I told her, unless you can tell the truth and be willing to be unpopular, you'll never be a good Dharma teacher. Because you like to be liked. Mm. And so you always fashion what you say in a way that the person will walk away liking you. And sometimes it's like not exactly or not really telling the truth. The skill comes in being able to tell the truth in a way that the person can hear it, even though the, if they don't hear it right now, if they're searching for the truth, they want to know the truth, at some point in their inquiry, in their introspection, they will see the truth of that. And it's your job to stay neutral and available to them so that when they come back, you can graciously receive them. Or if they never come back, as long as they got the message and were able to do their own self-correction, that's what you're after, not being liked or cherished or loved. So it's not an easy job for one who's needy. Um, that's the other side of that. All my teachers know that very well because I was a bad student. <laughs> I, I usually didn't get the message early on. You know, and I usually left them by the time it sunk in and it settled on me. So I understand that, and I and I expect that. But coming in, you have this idea, yeah, like I'm speaking for the Dharma, you know, and um, and you expect it to be so well uh, received. But remember, we're doing a difficult work of uprooting. Uh, first recognizing and then uprooting and having to discipline ourselves until the mind uh, becomes transformed by continually leaning in a different direction than it's wanting to go, than it has gone in the past, than it's been willing to go. And it takes the patience to allow that process to occur. You know, <clears throat> and so today my talk is on forgiveness, that's a strange talk for, for Buddhists to talk about forgiveness. I mean, if there is no sense of a personal I, who is there to offend or to be offended? So this is a high-level teaching. It's not one that can be grasped uh, uh, easily. And so I'd like to share the Buddha's view on forgiveness and the right times to introduce things, you know, to the right, to the right people. We're a little bit mixed up in what we consider um, 
strengths and weaknesses. You know, in this day and time when everyone is like holding their own, being bold enough to speak out truth, you know, calling a spade a spade and getting all worked out, you know, in conventional run-of-the-mill ordinary thinking. And so we miss the opportunity to overcome the world, you know, and its distresses, its offenses, uh, its suffering. And therefore, we also miss the opportunity to be part of truly transforming the world by a different way of holding things, a different way of thinking, a different way of being that, although it may seem to cause a temporary loss, inures to a great benefit in the end. Because the race is not given to the swift or to the strong, but the one who can endure until the end. I was reading an email this morning from a Buddhist organization that was inviting all all aggrieved women to share their grievances. To be courageous enough, they said, to let their voices be heard, to share their stories. And I thought to myself, what about all of us who didn't sacrifice our virtue, or our morals, or our dignity for fame or for money, although we all needed our jobs to feed our families too, right? What about those of us who had uh, great skills and and degrees who had to take menial-type jobs because we weren't willing to toe the line on what was expected of, of us? What about all of us who said no then, not 20 years later, after we have our fame and, and, and made our money and, and, you know, and have these great positions. What about us who said no then when it was happening? These are the truly courageous ones. I can tell you, too, that in the end, nothing was really lost. We didn't suffer 20 years of, of shame, you know, inner shame, uh, uh, low esteem. Because we were willing to sacrifice our gain to maintain our personal dignity. No, we didn't get that great part or that great job. We're not standing or sitting before thousands, you know, simply because we didn't keep our mouth shut or we weren't willing to be the token. I can't tell you how many jobs I've been offered. Because they say, Pony, why do you have a way with words? You know, and they offer you a lot of money and great position, you know, if you can be a, a spokesperson, but then they want to tell you what to say. Hmm. So we spoke our truth and we walked away, never looking back. And there's a great dignity and honor in that. Even if nobody knows about it, even if nobody cares. <laughs> So inner integrity is important if you're on a spiritual journey to awakening. I can tell you that holding a grudge has its own recompense in terms of the personal toll that it takes on one. It breaks relationships. It keeps you from doing your best. It keeps you in emotional turmoil. It keeps the mind in low destinations and unhappy states. And it deadens the heart. It supplants your character. When, and you don't even recognize it. The Buddha said, my dharma is for those who have little dust in their eyes. They already recognize the dustiness 
of worldly life and they're looking for a way out or if they're not yet looking for a way out when a way is presented to them they will recognize the opportunity and they will seize it and so we have to be careful not to jump on the bandwagon of popular opinion from a place of rage or from vengeance or from self-righteousness or even from victimization in order to employ the most beneficial ways of helping transform the minds and the hearts of society. Did Buddha teach forgiveness? Some of us say yes he did. Some of us say no he didn't. And maybe he didn't use that particular word, but he did simply and clearly define processes by which we abandon immediate and lingering unwholesome states of mind. He started off by saying if you want to be able to meditate, the first thing you have to do is set aside craving or covetousness and grief for the world, for the things that happen uh, due to our ignorance, our, our greed, due to our confusion. These things will happen because they are the fruit, you know, of an unripened mind. He said we have to be willing to lay aside offense, to lay aside disgust, to lay aside humiliation. If we get, if we lay aside offense, disgust, and humiliation, I, I, you know, just about everything uh, unwholesome can fit in those three categories. That's everything. But this is the charge. This is what we are called to do. So whenever we're doing whatever we do in the best way we can, however we can, we need to be putting it up against our standard, not the standard of the world. Otherwise, no point in embarking on this, pro in this process. Just do what we're going to do. We can go and ask any fool on the street for advice. But if we ask those that we consider wise, then we have the responsibility then to at least employ, to put to the test the response that we get. Or don't waste their time. You can waste your own if you want, but don't waste other people's time. And so he did talk about even when, uh, when we were in the uh, communities, the disciples of the Buddha gathered in communities, there were processes laid out for how we would handle grievances and disputes. And there was the regular gathering to talk about it openly, you know. I mean, one, one uh, thing that will help you not do what you would do under the cloak of darkness is for all these things that have to be talked about in the, in the assembly. <laughs> that will make you like decide, never mind, it's not worth it, you know, because you don't want certain things to be exposed, you know, especially if you walk around looking all sweet, like I'm the sweetest person in the world, then you don't want some things told. And so the way the Buddha like just nipped that in the bud is that it's going to be told in the community. Now we don't do that here because we're still working at resolving things in private. 
But if we can't resolve them in private, he said, then you get together in the group and you bring it out openly. And together we'll all decide. If you can't decide, together we'll all decide, you know, how something should be addressed. So as much as we think we want everything that the Buddha laid in, I'm telling you, we don't. Uh, because some of us would not be able to handle that. You know, we would just wouldn't, you know, our fragile our fragile egos would not even be allowed to handle it. But he, he would only take ones or he'd invite you in, but only ones with strong constitutions who really wanted, who really wanted to get, who really wanted to uproot their defilements. Only those would stay. It'd become too much for many. They couldn't stand that level of truthfulness. They'd have to, they'd have to leave. So, you know, with the Buddha, if, uh, if you couldn't, y'all couldn't figure out how to handle something, he said, bring it to me. And he, basically, the way he did it is he set in a rule and he, or he cut it out completely. I always tell the story of the nun who, you know, uh, was near a, uh, um, a uh, garlic grove. And the farmer t- liked her. He said, you can, anytime you want garlics, you know, you can come and have them. And she had these big garlics that she that could be roasted for their meals. But one day she invited all the nuns, and, and I mean, it was, uh, I understand it was, I think it was like 500 nuns, I forget the number, but it was a lot of them. And they cleaned out the whole grove. When the farmer came back, he was like shocked, he was upset, he went to the Buddha, he said, those nuns, they, they, they took all of my crop. They, the Buddha laid in a rule, no eating garlic. That's how he handled it. Just cut it off. If you have to bring it to me, we just won't do it. And so, uh, as much as we say, well, we just want what the Buddha said. We want to do the way the Buddha did. I'm telling you, some of us are not really ready for that. Even I myself. You know, I'm still chewing on some of the ways that he handled (laughs) some things. You know, because I'm leaning more on the side of those who are continually committing offenses in spite of our best intentions. So I have like a heart for the ones who make mistakes, because I'm included in that group, you know. Um, but he, he, he spoke to us and he said, you know, in the Loving Kindness Sutta, the Metta Sutta, he had left his disciples in a, in a forest and he told them to meditate there and they were there and they were meditating. Everything was going good and then after a while, you know, they started to feel uneasy and troubled and one uh, finally said something to the other like, is anything bothering you? He said, yeah, I'm, I've got the creeps, you know, it's like things are scaring me, you know. And he said, me too. And they started talking to each other and they found out that they were all being terrorized by, by the... Um, the beings that lived in the forest, not human beings, not animals, but other kinds of beings, fine material beings. And so they said, we got to leave here. This forest is haunted. And they went and traveled back. You know, it's not like I'll get to the Buddha in an hour because nobody had vehicles. And so they had to walk everywhere. When they finally got to where the Buddha was after that long journey and they told him everything was happening, he said, you need to go back. He said, but they said, but we can't practice there, you know, because, you know, these beings are terrible. He said, you need to go back. And he said, and on your way back, I want you to lean your mind into these kinds of thoughts. Like, uh, may every being be free from suffering, free from enmity 
and hatred. May they dwell happily. You know, and he gave them more words and more words and more words. And they, and he sent them back. And on their way back, this journey back, they were just simply imbuing their mind with that, with loving kindness for who they felt was their enemy, for who they felt uh, fearful of, for who they felt was terrorizing them. Those are the ones that he had them making this recitation, washing their own minds, not the ones who they felt were offending them or doing something to them, but they, the ones who felt that they were the victims, for the ones who were, he required that they wash their own minds. And when they got back to the forest, their minds were in such high states that the beings welcomed their presence. Now, sometimes we think, I'm okay. I'm okay, you know? But are we really okay? You see, we all have this sickness, this disease called, you know, called I-ness. And I-ness makes us act in all kinds of ways that we don't even realize or recognize. That we're continually the center of our whole life and concern about what affects me and my and mine. And without realizing it, it makes us offend. It makes us, it makes us do things that are self-seeking and self-serving. Sometimes we do know that we're doing it, but it's like we just can't, I can't stop myself. The discipline has not been developed. The mind has not been leaning in a certain way that it overrides the mind that's used to thinking or acting or responding or initiating things in this way that gives me what I want when I want it, how I want it. And so he takes us into a training that has not much at all, if at all, to do with anyone else or anything out here. But it's all about a journey inward. And although we have to relate to people out here, and sometimes we do it skillfully and sometimes we do it unskillfully, He says, to reflect continually on what we are doing as we are doing it and what we are doing after we've done it. He said, and if you continue to do that and put it up against your standard, not up against what your friends do, not up against what your neighbors do, not what up against those that you think uh, appear successful do, but what is your real standard? And if the Dharma is your standard, then you have to put it up against the Dharma. We don't lower the bar of the Dharma. We like have to reach up to it. And this is the practice. This is what we, this is what we do. And then he said when we sit, we will have a pleasant abiding. We will have those spaces where everything becomes smooth and copacetic. You're looking for it out there, but it's not to be found out there. It's to be found in here. And when you have arrived at that destination inside, then you are equipped to face the challenges out here because they're going to rarely be copacetic because it's the world that we live in that is the outpicturing of some very dastardly minds, including our own sometime. (laughs) 
And so this is the way that he helps us to understand life, the vicissitudes, the life of life, the the winds of life that we collectively create by our own thoughts, by our own intentions, by our own speech, and by our own action. It's not happenstance. It's not a miracle when it's good. It's not the devil when it's bad. But together, we create the next moment. So what will be your part in the creation of the next moment? It will depend on what you do in the present moment. There was a sutta where a woman falsely accused the Buddha of being the father of her child. And there were some who were like, you know, he he comes out of obscurity. And after all, he was a, a rich uh, chieftain's son. And, you know, he, um, uh, the the uh, 1%, you know. And, and there were a lot of, of uh, people who, you know, they didn't like his, his rise to, uh, his sudden rise to fame. They didn't like... Um, there were ugly ones who didn't like his beauty. There were poor ones that didn't like his his wealth, even though he abandoned it all. He was like just trust fund baby. You know. You know how we have these ideas about people mostly because we didn't have it, you know. Uh and so we formed these opinions about people, you know. Uh Panya Deep and I watched a uh, documentary, uh uh, yesterday or day before yesterday, and I don't even know really what the documentary was about because I was on the computer with headphones on, doing work and watching the documentary. And but all I saw were all these wealthy, powerful people, and this was the underbelly. This was about their personal lives and how their personal life was 180 degrees different from their public persona. You know, and so how they had fame and they had power and they had wealth, but just the derelict life they lived in private, you know, so much so that their uh, their children committed suicide, that they were uh, alcoholics and uh, drug addicted and they committed suicide and, you know, and they um, uh, uh, lured away each other's uh Wives and husbands and just a a great debauchery, you know. And yet some of us look at the outer persona and have uh, an envy and admire these kinds of lives. And it shows the level of our ignorance in this country, even right now. There have been, we see the, the, um, result of such thinking, admiring those that we consider wealthy and those that we consider famous and and some of us who have the least, the least education, the least amount of money, the least 
an understanding of how the world works, the least interest in investigating things, the least just, you know, have actually created through their actions a situation that's causing much suffering, as admiring and longing for what we don't have in our lives, thinking there's something so much to be gained in that. And now we have a mess that we have to undo. And how shall we do that? You know? Certainly there was a lot of anger. There was a lot of hatred that caused the arising and the manifestation of certain things operating in our society today. So can we fix it with the same mind? Can we fix it with hatred? Can we fix it? You know, it's going to take a different mind to produce a different result. Some of us don't believe that unless we confront the person, some of us don't believe that there's any way that anything can fall, crumble. That's because you don't know the Dharma. But the Dharma tells us that whatever we plant will have its harvest. So what are we planting? It's not always about confronting. It's not always about requiring something of another. He said the one who is noble and of upright character examines himself. He says that he becomes strong and uh, secure in that right doing, in that right speech, in that right thought, so that he can endure offenses, so that he can take upon himself the illnesses of society and not look to society for the answer. That he can hold unfavorable things, you know, in his hand and he can wait, have the patience to endure something, to go through something while the goodness that he is cultivating and putting into place has a chance to reach its fullness and overflow. But you have to believe that there is a value in this. If you don't, you'll be like a double-minded man who's unstable in all of his ways. And so he's teaching us about this kind of fortitude, this kind of strength, this kind of clear seeing. And it's not so much for this world, it's just that the world benefits from it as we are, are, are pursuing the way or, or the path leading upward, then the crumbs fall under the table. There's a, a, um, a teaching in uh, the New Testament where the woman comes to, the, to Jesus for, you know, for assistance, for uh, solace, for instruction. And he said, you know, um, 
we shouldn't take the the meat that is you know uh for the people and and cast it before swine she said even a dog eats the crumbs that fall from the table and he said he marveled at her wisdom and he served her and so he's calling upon us not to do this great thing that we cannot do but for us to really find our true selves, to find that part of us which is noble, to find that part of us which has a virtue that exceeds the degradation that anyone could subject us to or to put upon us. And if we don't believe that that kind of light can dispel the darkness, then we should abandon this way and go look for another, seriously. And if we do believe it, then we have to apply ourselves to it, even when we don't feel like it, even when it hurts, even when we feel like I just can't see any way that this is going to be helpful. We stand on our most holy faith. And those that are called to this estate. And you would not be within the sound of my voice if it wasn't the time now for you. Now is your time. Now is my time. Because I too am a hearer of these words. I too, you know, the stuff that I talk is not my words. You know, I have to take them. I have to eat them. I have to apply, apply them to my wounds. I have to subdue myself with these words too. This is the, this is me preaching to the choir. You know, I have to eat it too. Not like, oh, yeah, like I know her. She's not so perfect. No, you don't have to come up with that conclusion. I'll just tell you right up. I'm not. But we all have to work at this. And we have to find something that we feel is noble enough for us to latch hold to and hold on with our very lives. And to the ones who can do this. We, those are the ones that inherit the prize. There's a Tibetan practice that's calling it, called rolling um, all uh, faults into one. Rolling all faults into one. And it doesn't mean it exactly like it sounds. You know, like you do something and I take, I take the blame for that. You do something, I say, oh, it's my fault. I'm, oh, it's my fault. I did it. I, you know, it doesn't mean it like that. It means choosing not to fault anyone for anything. And it's a way of clearing the mind and freeing the heart. It may do something for the other person, but it absolutely will do something for you. And 
when we find that place of freedom, you know, we go back to it again and again. Maybe not in the beginning. Maybe we have to sit with something for a minute. You know, when, when, even when you're angry with someone. I mean, you just can't stay angry all the time. It starts to leave. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not through being angry with them yet. You know, and we have to like, like keep bringing up the story because it will have to wait by itself. How many of us, like the first time, you know, the offense mag, um, manifests itself and we're there with it and then starts to waft away, how many of us let it? Just let it go away. No, we have to work with that puppy for a little while. We have to bring it around a few times at least. We have to tell just two people. We have to, you know, we have to do something with it before we start to decide. Maybe five years later, ten years later, twenty years later, that it's not worth holding on to. But what if we could, like, do the catch and release? Catch and release. There it is. I got it. I looked at it. I see that. Gone. He said that that's what will uproot our suffering. It's not as much what happens to us as what we choose to do with that. As much as how we choose to hold it, to make it out our constant anthem, our constant theme, our story, our drama, our holding things in this way. And yes, there will be, until we are enlightened, there will be the arising of disputes. You have to be deaf, dumb, and blind if you don't recognize that. But the quicker we can release, the sooner we move back into places of harmony. Rolling all blames into one, and I will polish it off and release. It's a practice. Webster defines forgiveness as the intentional and voluntary process by which a victim undergoes a change in feelings and attitude regarding an offense. Let's go of negative emotions such as vengefulness with an increased ability to wish even the offender well. Forgiveness is the, well, I want to unpack it. So he uses two words, intentional and voluntary process. That's the first thing. I have to be intentionally looking to resolve what separates us. I must be doing this voluntarily, not by fault. You know when you're children and you have like a little tiff and your parents bring together and say, okay, now you have to make up. Now you say to him, I'm sorry. And you say, yeah, and we did it. I'm sorry. You know, say, now you all hug. And and so, and then we grow up and we're still in the, still doing these same things and thinking <laughs> about them in these same ways. No. But it must be intentional. I have an intention to do this. I want to do this. Not grudgingly, but freely. Freely. And voluntary. It's 
a process. Forgiveness is a process. It's a process for who? For victims. Now, when I no longer consider myself a victim, I don't need a process for forgiveness. But as long as I consider myself a victim, then I need a a way out. I need a process. That's where forgiveness comes about. So now in the Buddha's teachings, when he's like, there's no victim that's just causing condition and these things come, you know, then maybe there's not a need for forgiveness because there is no victim. But if in our own mind we are still considering perpetrator and victim, then we need a process of forgiveness. You understand what I mean? And that's why there's not so much. He's teaching the same things, but he's teaching it from a different angle, from a different level. But those of us who are steeped in ourselves don't understand there's no self, non-self thing. You know, then we need a process for forgiveness. And it's a process in which one undergoes a change in feelings and attitude regarding the offense and the offender. When those disciples said we can't go back there because... There are evil spirits in there. He said, you have to go back. He just did not buy their victimization thing at all. He said, you have the power, the light within you to transform all appearances. But it's going to take a process of washing, wiping away your habitual ways of seeing things, your habitual ways of understanding things, your habitual ways of doing things. So now I'm going to give you a hack. Just walk right on back there. And while you're going, say this to yourself. And by the time they got back there, their minds were so sweet that they could not even recognize if somebody was doing something to them. And so it says that, that as we undergo this process, it's letting go of Negative emotions. Whose negative emotions? Not theirs. It's letting go of our own negative emotions based on our perception of what has happened. And it could actually be, our perception doesn't have to be faulty. It could actually be a fact. Nevertheless, if you don't want the next moment to be more of the last moment, then some kind of a change is in order. And so it says, letting go of negative emotions such as vengefulness, hatred, fear, loss of esteem, and replacing them with an increased ability to wish even the offender well. So, I'm asking us today, as our troubadours come forward, to join me in this experiment that the Buddha um, performed with his own disciples when they came to him. After they left the forest where they were 
meditating, trying with all of what they had in them to do good. And it wasn't like they were off doing not good. They were somewhere trying to do good. And maybe, just maybe, this had to be so, so that they could go to the next level. Sometimes we think our good is good enough. You know? I had someone say to me that I w- was doing a favor for, you know. And she said to me, hm, I thought I was being considerate of you. I'm like, no, you're not the one being considerate. I'm the one being considerate. That's what I wanted to say. You know, but if a person couldn't even see that they were receiving a benefit from somebody, what's the point in saying that? They're not going to see it. So I had to, I had to eat that thought. I could, I couldn't say it. To say it would be to like just give one more thing to rise up about. And if I want to do that, then go ahead and say it because there would be plenty rising up. But if I didn't want to, if I wanted to like, you know, uh, in the uh, uh, Vinaya, that's the like, like our rule book for monastics. There are, you know, different levels of offense. And that if you actually commit this, there's different things that you uh, do. One is like go to the person privately and tell them. Some of the things you have to bring in front of the whole community. Some is they just consider you not a monk or a nun anymore. Some, you know, so they just shun you, you know. Or some, you know, so there's different levels. Some is you just make up in your mind. You look at it yourself and you vow not to do it anymore. And if you, if you need to practice, please go right ahead. Um, and not to do it anymore. And so it's all these different ways you know, that we address different levels of offense. And so uh, he has one thing that if we cannot, you know, come to some agreement like you did that, no, I didn't, you did it. No, I didn't, you did it. No, I didn't, you did it. Then he said, can we disagree that we can't settle this? He said, and he called it covering a matter over with dirt. We just bury the thing and move on. And so he has many ways that he teaches us or takes us through processes depending on where our mind is at the time and how stony of a heart we have built up, you know. And sometimes if the heart is too stony, you know, you can't handle it. You can't like, When I say handle, I mean like manipulate. You can't hold it because it's not flexible enough to try to do something. will cause it to shatter, to break like a a fragile glass or like dropping a rock on concrete. So it all can't be done at one time. But we do what we can, little by little, bit by bit. And in this way, We gradually transform. We decide as we're leaning our minds into some goodness, we decide how much our peace is worth to us. We decide how big of a heart we can arouse for one who must be suffering to say such things or to do such things. 
We decide which side of this we want to be on. We decide whether we want to really be free of it. It happened last year, last month, last week, last night, a few minutes ago. How long we want to hold on to the pain? How long we want to hold on the tightness that I can hardly breathe? How long do we want to hold on? And he offers the opportunity every step of the way. If you couldn't do it first step, you can do it at the second step. Or you can do it at the third step. Or you can do it at the tenth step. Whenever you decide that you want to be free. So in a way it's a little bit selfish. When I'm thinking enough of this because I want to be free. But the thing about us is that when we start to experience our freedom, we also start to experience our vastness. And we start to realize that we are not really separated from one another as we think we are. And so when I am free, you also are free. There was a the last story. There were two brothers and uh, the father really liked one. You know, he was robust, strapping, and, uh, you know, man's man. And, you know, he said, I'll just, uh, firstborn son. Yeah, so he's going to get everything. And all the other, you know, brothers, they like also ran. So one brother decided when the father could no longer see and was getting old and he was going to like give out, you know, the, um, uh, what do you call it when they, uh, yeah, inheritance. And so he, the story goes, he strapped himself with lamb's wool. So when his father said, come closer, I can't see you, let me feel you. And he felt, yeah, this is the one that has the woolly hair, you know, and, uh, and he gave him his birthright. And when the other brother realized that he had been tricked and, the, and that his brother had stolen his birthright, uh, enmity and hatred arose between the two. So the brother was going to go get him and kill him. And he gets it all back, right? But the younger brother fled. And after he was gone for many, many years, all those years he lived in constant fear over his wrongdoing. And he was known, his reputation was ruined. He was known as a trickster. Actually, that's what his name means, the trickster. And so in later years, he decided he wanted to make peace. He heard that his brother was coming towards the land that he was living in. And he got together everything that he had. He had riches. He had cattle. He had sheep. He had lots of servants. He had lots of wives. He put all of them up there in front of him except his favorite wife. He kept her back there with him. But he put all the other, other ones in front. And he was sending all these things that he might soothe his brother's enmity and anger towards him. Offering all these things. And finally, you know, 
It got down to where he would now be face to face with his brother. When his brother looked at him, he threw his arms around him, said, I forgave you a long time ago. So that's our story. A lot of times the thing that we are fearing is really that which we wrapped up and locked away in our own hearts. We could just let it go. So today, the troubadours are going to lead us in a mantra. And actually, this particular one, uh, you missed the one we did last week, and so we'll come around again. Uh, You know, truth by any name is still the truth. So this is one that comes from the Ho'oponopono Hawaiian tradition. But if you look at it, it didn't have its beginning there. You could go back to 500 B.C. when the Buddha spoke to his disciples who had fled the forest and said, we can't stay there because there's wicked beings. And he said, you go back. When you go back, just say this to yourself. And see the power that it has to change the outer structure of appearances. And the words to this mantra are, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. I love you. And anyone who comes up in your mind, that you have offended. I'm sorry. I'm not even asking you to go to them and say I'm sorry. Just within your own mind. Saying it to them right within yourself. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. You know every time we do something we don't always want to have to go back to the person. You know, sometimes we're just hoping because we like we not strong enough. We're just too weak, or whatever. we just hope they understand. You know, I can't face it. You know, hoping that their mercy will just cover us. We want that for ourselves. Can we give that to anyone? Now, I believe in holding people accountable for what they do. But do we always hold ourselves accountable in a loving way for what we do? Of course, we don't. So sometimes can we like just cover something over with dirt? Can we say, please forgive me? Just inwardly, even if we can't say it to the other person, can we say, I love you? Not I love you even though you did those things to me. No. Can we just say, I love you. Not I love you even though you didn't love me back. Can we just say, I love you. I have a lot of people I know. I'm their friend, even though they're not mine. I'm still their friend. Even though they think they used me and got something, you can't use what I freely give. Freely 
give it. You don't have to take anything from me. If you think you need it so bad, I freely give it to you. And that is the power and the strength and the courage that comes with practicing in this way. I will never be a victim of my gender, a victim of my color, a victim. <laughs> Write your own word in there. This has to be a decision that one makes for oneself. We cannot rely on anyone else to take up for us. We have to develop it, cultivate it from the inside out. Can we choose to love? It's easy to love people that love you. Can you choose to love the unlovely? That's the question. And the words are? I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. And I love you. Can you join in with me? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. Thank you. I thank you. I love you. Given to us all. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. I thank you. I love you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. I love you. I love you. And I thank you. These. These are the special words. Gracious to us all. Gracious to us all. These are the special words. to us all. Precious to us all. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. I thank you. I thank you. And I love you. And I love you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please forgive Please me. And I, love you. and I love you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I thank you. And I love you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I thank you. And I love you. 
these are the special words. These are the special words. Precious to us all. These are the special words. Gracious. Just think about it. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I thank you and I love you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I thank you and I love you and just keep singing it softly I'm sorry please forgive me thank you I love you I'm sorry please forgive me I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Life becomes easier when we learn to accept an apology that we never got. I'm sorry. You don't forgive because you're weak, but because you realize that like you, people make mistakes that sometimes harm others due to ignorance. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. For a wound to heal, you need to stop touching it. And it's the same with grievances. Stop replaying them. Please forgive me. I thank you. And I love you. (coughs) Give them a get out of jail free card. I'm sorry. Whether it's you saying it or you saying it for them. Rolling all blames into one. It's a very deep practice. Please forgive me. (laughs) I thank you. And I love you. In the beginning when I say these things, I may not be sorry. I don't want to forgive you. Oh, thank you. I certainly don't love you, but as we continue to imbue the mind with these thoughts of loving kindness, it uproots our hatred. As we continue to espouse this kind of compassion, it uproots cruelty. We develop uh, an affinity for others, a deep understanding of them. We begin to be able to really see them where they are. And the strong can bear the infirmities of the weak. And we change lineage. We move out of the class of the weakling into 
the family of the courageous. These are the words. Gracious to us all. These are the precious words. One more time, can we sing together? I'm sorry, please forgive me. I thank you. I thank you and I love you. I'm sorry, please forgive me. I thank you and I love you. Are the special words, and they're gracious to us all. These are the gracious words, the gracious words. This is the end, and they are special to us all. Now, that's a practice that we can do. And we just do it. We just go with it until our hearts and minds are free. I am so grateful to have found the Dharma. I got things in drips and drabs and pieces all my life, but just couldn't connect the dots. I faulted the traditions, I faulted the religion, I faulted other people because I didn't get it. But now, I release all of that. I roll all blames into myself. And I take up the mantle of being a light unto my own feet. Lighting my own pathway doing my own work, I am at peace with the world. May you be well and happy and peaceful. May no harm come to you, no danger. But if it does, may you be able to deal with it. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.